in what may be the final message in this Desperate Household series. With the Lord's help, I want to I want to try and address the issue today of the blended family. The government does not collect data on step families, but there are some various groups and organizations who attempt to do it, um, but with their limited resources and abilities, uh, admittedly, their methods are, are often limited, and so I want you to understand that up front. But here's what I was able to, to find on numerous occasions, and the number was, was pretty much always the same. And they said this, and to me this was startling, that there are approximately 1,300 blended families that are formed not every week, not every month, but every day in the United States. 1,300 families blending, attempting to blend together on a daily basis. So here's what that means. It means, according to the numbers, that there are more couples remarrying than there are couples who are marrying for the first time. Most couples who have children and who choose to remarry, I mean, it's in their heart for this marriage to last. They want this marriage to be healthy and they want it to be strong. But what they may not know is that the odds are against them. While the U.S. divorce rate is somewhere around 45%, the blended family divorce rate is approximately 67%. 76% for third marriages. So evidently, happily ever after is a little more difficult the second or third time around. But there is some good news. While it is difficult to bring two families harmoniously together as one, it can be done. Sitting among you today are examples of that truth. Families who, for whatever reasons, have found themselves now blended together are living harmoniously together under the same roof as one. And I'm guessing if you were to, to talk with each one of those families, that they would tell you this morning that the struggles are worth it. They're worth it. Join me today in Genesis chapter 21. If you received a bulletin on your way in, you saw that I included an answer sheet there because we're going to cover a lot of material today and I wanted you to be able to, to take it with you. 
And, and I get it. I, I look out there. I know who's here today. And I understand that for some of you, this is going to be pretty much irrelevant. But every one of us, every one of us know of a family right now who's trying to get it all together. They're, they're trying to put all the pieces together. They're, they're trying to make everything blend together. And they're trying to make everybody happy. And they, they know what they want. And they're trying to get there. If you know somebody like that, give them this stuff. Direct them to our website, fellowshipfamily.org. They can, they can listen to the message for themselves. And, and I hope you'll do that for, for all of the messages that we preach through this series because while they may not apply to you there's no doubt in my mind that you know somebody who they will apply to and so I hope that you'll direct them that way and here's something to think about did you know that almost every family in the Old Testament was a blended family Think about that. Almost every family in the Old Testament was a blended family. Now granted, they were blended because men would marry multiple wives. And why in the world they would do that, I have no idea. That means multiple mothers-in-law. Why would you want to put yourself through that torture? So they were blended not by divorce, not because of, of death in most cases, but they were blended nonetheless. At this point in Genesis, we read the story of Abraham and Sarah who were enjoying being parents. Now get this, parents, not grandparents. <laughs> At the ripe old age of 103 and 93. Mercy. Their son, Isaac, was born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, respectively. And in that day, a Jewish child would, would be weaned from his mother somewhere around the age of three or so. So that's where we get the 103 and 93 age approximation. Now, there are two other players in the drama of this chapter, and one is named Hagar, and one is named Ishmael. That was Hagar's son. Ishmael, the son, would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 or 17 years old. And we're going to pick up reading today in verse 9 of chapter 21 and here's what we're going to find Abraham is organizing a feast to celebrate the weaning of his son Isaac off of his mother and during the course of this Sarah sees Ishmael mocking Isaac look at it verse 9 Genesis chapter 21 and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born to Abraham, mocking. Now, if you go over to Galatians chapter 4, Paul makes reference to this particular verse here in the book of Genesis, and the word that he uses in Galatians chapter 4 is the word persecuting or persecution. 
So we get the idea that what Sarah observed here was not a one-time deal. That this mocking and this persecuting had been going on for some time. Look in verse 10. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Now, for those who are not familiar with the family dynamic that is at work here, let me give you a, a, a brief explanation. Abraham and Sarah, early on in their lives, were not able to have children. For some reason, Sarah was just not able to conceive. And so one day, God came to Abraham, and he saw their grief, and he saw their sorrow, and he saw their struggle. And one day, God came to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to be the son of you and Sarah. And I'm going to bless the whole world through that one son. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And they waited some more, but no son. I mean, they're getting old. No son. And so Sarah, because of her impatience with God and with his plan, comes up with her own plan. And her plan is this. She encourages her husband, Abraham, to go into her maid, uh, Hagar and sleep with her in hopes that Hagar would conceive and then they could have a son. Well, Abraham foolishly did what his wife asked him to do. And sure enough, Hagar conceived and she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Ishmael was Abraham's son, sure enough. But he wasn't the promised son. He wasn't the son that God said, I will use to be a blessing to all of the world. That son, Isaac, didn't come along for another 15 years or so. So what we have here is a blended family. We have Abraham and Sarah and their son, Isaac. And we have Abraham and his other wife, Hagar, and their son, Ishmael. Are you with me? We're on the same page? And as is common in these situations, Sarah now resents Ishmael and his mother, Hagar. And she wants them out of the picture, totally. So what does Abraham do? I mean, come on, he's in a lose-lose situation. If he doesn't make Hagar and Ishmael leave, then he's going to have to deal with the wrath of his wife, Sarah. If he does make them leave, then it's going to be hard on him, and it's really going to be hard on Hagar and Ishmael because they have where, nowhere to go. Now, where's Sarah at in that? She doesn't care. She doesn't give a rip. She just wants them gone. I just want them out of my life. 
parents trying to keep peace in a step-family situation, I think you can probably identify with this. Abraham loved Sarah and was overjoyed that God had given them a child together. But he also loved Ishmael, whom he had conceived with Hagar, Sarah's maid. So God steps in in verse 12, and he gives Abraham some direction. God said to Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said to thee, hearken to her voice, for Isaac shall thy, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman, God said, will I make a nation because he is thy seed. So in other words, God tells Abraham, do what, in order to maintain the peace in the home, do what Sarah is asking you to do. Send Hagar and Ishmael away. But God said, don't worry, Abraham. I'm also going to bless and make a nation of Ishmael as well. So Abraham does what God tells him to do. Look at verse 14. And Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder. In other words, he put water on one shoulder and bread on the other shoulder. And he gave her the child, Ishmael, and no doubt he was, he was walking with her. And he sent her away and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now here's the deal this morning. Every family situation can be stressful. Can I get an amen right there? Every family situation can be stressful. But blended families have some extra stressors. The first one is someone else's ex. The second would be someone else's child or someone else's children. There are factors other factors that come into play here. For example, finances are, are often given to more than one family. And here's something that we, we have to understand for so many reasons. The blended family is born of things like loss and failure and hurt and grief. And so everyone needs comforting. Many individuals in blended family situations often lack good conflict resolution skills. Many blended families fall prey to failure because they get blindsided by things like these, things that, are, that bring uh, pressure and unforeseen dynamics to the family living situation. So that being said, let me, let me offer some suggestions to you, or perhaps if not to you, to someone you know who may find them helpful in the work of successfully blending two families into one. You ready? Write these down. Here's number one. Maintain realistic expectations. Maintain realistic expectations. Listen, it's just not realistic to think that blended family members are going to feel like or relate to each other like biological family right at the outset. 
Now, I, I, I get it. In everything that I say today, there are going to be variations and there are going to be exceptions. And I'm not going to try to get into all of that today. But one of the exceptions here is, is dependent upon the age of the child. I mean, a, a young, young, young child really may not be old enough to know. And to them, he's always been my dad. But you take a, a child who's, who's eight or nine or maybe a teenager, and, and now you've got a totally different dynamic at work here. But I think it's unrealistic to think that everyone in that family situation is going to consider and act toward others as though they are blood. One researcher said it generally takes two or three years before stepfamilies begin to think or act like a family. So here's what that tells those of us my age that, that remember the Brady Bunch. Here's what we learned from that. That wasn't reality. Here's a story of a man named Brady. I won't go into all that, but you know what I'm talking about. All these pictures pop up, and everybody just loves each other, and everybody's, listen, that wasn't reality, that was TV. So maintain realistic expectations. Number two, mourn the losses. Remember what I said a moment ago? The blended family is born out of things like loss and failure and hurt and grief. So that means that everyone needs some space to mourn their loss. Listen, not every, for, for you adults, the kids aren't as happy as you are that the other spouse is out of your life. They're not celebrating that like you are. One, uh, um, this is where things like patience and wisdom and comfort and love are essential for everyone. And then here's number three, strengthen your marriage. Now, I'm not giving these in order of importance today because if I were, this would be at the top. This would absolutely be at the top. Strengthen your marriage. The weakest link in the blended family is the marriage relationship. Listen, the weakest link in the marriage, or excuse me, in the blended family is the marriage relationship. So invest deeply into the life of your spouse. One huge problem in this area is that it's harder to take care of a marriage in a blended family because, quite frankly, you don't have as much time together as a couple that are just now getting married. And here's another issue to, to, to consider. Spouses in blended families have to grow and mature in the marriage while at the same time trying to raise a family. So they're trying to learn to love each other and they're trying to learn to get along and trying to, to be a happy husband and wife, but they don't get to do it alone like others do. There's the added dynamic of children. And they're trying to help them get along. And they're trying to help them love each other. And they're trying to bring them along. And, and, and sadly, many times the added strain of raising children is just too much for a remarried couple. 
One mistake I think that many step-parents make is trying too hard at first to be loved and accepted by their stepchildren. Listen to me. That will come with time. At the outset of a new marriage, that marriage needs to come first. Because a stable marriage will better serve the family than a well-intentioned campaign to develop instant rapport with the stepchildren. Does that make sense? Instead of putting all your time and energy and trying to win the love and favor of your stepchildren, work on being a good husband. Work on being a good wife. Work on being uh, strengthening your marriage and having the kind of marriage you need because that's the foundation that ultimately your family will be built on. Family's not going to be built on rapport with the stepkids. Again, that will come. I'm not saying that's not important, but that shouldn't be the most important. So lower your personal expectations of being loved by your stepchildren or having a close relationship with them. Children who have been wounded by divorce cannot make a quick turnaround. And sometimes I think they're the forgotten ones in this whole thing. I often tell people who are considering divorce, well, just think about this. The ones that really are going to get hurt the most are going to be your kids. You need to consider that. And I think sometimes we forget about the hurt and the pain that kids suffer and the kids face. The truth is a new step-parent may need to settle, listen to this, they may need to settle with being treated as a respected adult. That's all. At this point in their life, in the, in the life of their stepchildren, they're just a, another respected adult, like a police officer or a coach or a teacher, and not necessarily a parent at the outset. And if you don't force it, and if you keep the doors open, then most likely your stepchildren will eventually come around. We okay? Number four, help the children heal. Studies reveal that the majority of children whose parents divorce blame themselves for the breakup. So their way of thinking, if they had just been born at a different time, or if they had just acted in a different way, then mom and dad would still be together. You see, children, children aren't always informed as to everything that's going on in a marriage. And mom and dad do the best they can to put up a good front and a happy front and a united front. But the truth is, behind closed doors, mom and dad are at each other all the time. And there are issues going on and there are struggles that are happening and there are arguments that are going on and there are hateful words that are spoken and there are accusations that are, that are being flung around and, 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 and then into all of that all of a sudden comes the divorce word. But the kids don't know anything about that. All they know is that mom and dad aren't going to be together anymore and in, to their way of thinking, it's my fault. 
Does that make sense? It's my fault. And so I would encourage you to have conversations with them about that. And assure them that they did nothing wrong. And they had absolutely zero control over the situation. It's not your fault. Additionally, help them see that both parents still love them and still want them in their lives. Other advice I would give with respect to children and blended families would include this. Understand that children respond to, to situations differently. There's no cookie-cutter approach to helping your children adjust to life in a stepfamily. Well, this is the way they did it. Well, that's great, but their kids aren't your kids, and your situation, their situation, not your situation. And so there's no book, there's no formula, there's no pastor that can stand before you and just give you a cookie-cutter uh, way to do things. I'm just throwing out suggestions to you today. Every situation is different. Then I would say this, without sacrificing valuable time with your new spouse, don't sacrifice that. Without sacrificing that, take time with each of your children and or your stepchildren. And during that time, show them that you're interested in them as an individual. And that their place in the family is important. Help them feel secure and wanted in your life. And then this, accept and expect that they will have a relationship with their non-custodial parent. Say, uh, safety issues withstanding. Here's why I say that. It's because in some situations there was abuse. And it just was not a, a, a safe situation for those children to be in. I get that. Okay, so those things notwithstanding, let's say that's not the case, that's not the situation, then you need to recognize that any negative feelings that you have about this, those feelings are about you. They're not about the child or the children. Work on your feelings of negativity and by all, listen, by all means, keep them to yourself. You may think that he or she is a blankety blank, 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 blank. But your kids don't need to know that. Come on, help me. Your kids don't need to know that. Keep that kind of negativity to yourself. And when it comes to helping your children or stepchildren maintain a relationship with their non-custodial parent, do everything you can to enhance that. Then here's something else real quick. We're talking about helping the children heal. Here's something else. Don't be surprised by jealousy. Don't be surprised. Children may experience jealousy when they see their biological parent spending time with the step-parent and or their step-siblings. Just expect that there's going to be some jealousy there. It's natural. 
They may feel insecure. They may start feeling anxious about that because in their minds and their hearts, here's their thinking, well, they're going to take my place. They're stealing my dad. They're stealing my mom. I'm going to be cast out. I, I'm going to become second class in this home. So do everything within your power to ensure them that that is not the case. And then enjoy the relationship that you have. Again, it takes time to develop a relationship. The relationship you have as a couple, it's going to evolve and it's going to develop over time. And Lord willing, it's going to get better and better and stronger and stronger. And that's the same with stepchildren. Your relationship will evolve over a number of years. Enjoy it today for what it is. Well, Pastor, it's not, it's not what I want it to be. It's not what I hoped it would be. I get that. But enjoy it for what it is. Right now, today, and then start building and start working toward a better and stronger relationship. Here's another suggestion for blending families. Work hard at conflict resolution. All families, I don't care if it's a first-time family, a forever family, or a blended family. Every family has conflicts. Come on. But a blended family will usually have more. And think about it. When it really gets down to the root of the issue, a lot of the breakup to start with, if you go back and really look at it, probably had something to do with the fact that they didn't have good conflict resolution skills. And so this is a big deal. Many of the epistles that, that Paul wrote are full of teaching on what it takes to live peaceably with others get into the word learn what the bible has to say about resolving conflict you don't need to you, you want to go to the secular store and grab something that's fine but you've got the greatest book on conflict resolution that has ever been written it's the word of god it's truth of scripture and here's what you'll find. You'll save yourself thousands of dollars if you just go buy a good Bible and start reading it and learning it and putting it into practice. I've said it again. I've said it, I've said it once. I'll say it again. That whenever there is a problem in the home, whenever there's a problem among spouses or between parents and children, here's what I know is true. 100% of the time, somebody is not right with God. Somebody's not walking with God. Somebody's being controlled by the flesh and not the spirit. Because here's what I know, and we talked about this last week, when our vertical relationship is right, then our horizontal relationships will be right. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, wrote this in Proverbs chapter 16. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. 
Listen to him. You have got to learn to deal with things like anger and bitterness and jealousy and insecurity. And I'm telling you, with the help of this book and with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can. You can learn to deal with those things. Then here's a big one. It's a huge one. Agree on discipline. <laughs> this is huge. Listen, I am no expert on the family. I'll be quite honest, I don't even consider myself a counselor. But in all of my dealings with blended families and the problems that they had to deal with, 99% of the time, the biggest contributor to disunity is disagreement when it comes to discipline. Because discipline is a delicate balancing act, I want you to listen to these words from marriage and family author Ron Deal. Here's what he wrote. Emotional attachment, trust, and love are what opened the door to influence in parenting. Say it again. Emotional attachment, trust, and love are what opened the door to influence in parenting. Once that is established, an adult, be it a foster parent, grandparent, adoptive parent, or step-parent, when those things have been established, he said, then they can lead and discipline a child. Said another way, the old adage is true. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Why step-parents understand this and grow relationship in order to grow authority? Authority can exist without a bonded relationship, but it has its limits. A police officer can pull you over. A boss or coach can tell you what to do. A teacher can tell a student the rules of the classroom. But none of these authorities obtain obedience out of love or deep appreciation. When's the last time you got a speeding ticket and said, Oh, sir, I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Thomas, that happened recently? No. Can I give you a hug? No. And until step-parents establish a love relationship with a child, they're just external authorities imposing boundaries. That's why it's critical. Early in a blended family, that step-parents recognize these limits and borrow power from the biological parent. If they overstep the limits of their role, they can sabotage the developing relationships and any authority they may have had along with it. So what's this concept of borrowed power? Bless God, I'm the dad in this home now. I'm their mother now. When we talk about borrowed power, think of it this way. Picture a babysitter, if you will. On their first visit 
to a home. They don't have any relational authority with your children. The kids don't know them. They don't like them. And quite frankly, they don't need them. Kind of like they feel towards step-parents. But over time, as the kids and babysitter get more time together, then they can form a significant relationship bond. But what do babysitters do in the meantime with these sinful little heathens? How do they, how do they cope? How do they handle discipline? I mean, they're, they're hoping to develop this relationship, but how do, how do they manage them? The answer is borrow power. I'm talking about the she's in charge while I'm gone speech. And you parents are probably giving it a time or two. Now listen, mom and dad, going to the movies. And while we're gone, we expect you to obey her. We expect you to do what she tells you to do. And we expect you to respect her. She's now in charge. And if you don't do that, when I come back, then I'm going to have to deal with it. How many of you parents ever had that discussion with your kids? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Here's what that speech does. It empowers the babysitter to set boundaries and impose consequences that are ultimately owned by the parent. Now, do they have that right just because the parents are hiring them to watch their kids? No. That power and authority has been delegated to them and given to them by the parents. So they're operating with borrowed power. Does that make sense? However, if the parent comes home and they're unwilling to own those boundaries, now there's going to be chaos. There's going to be trouble. Step parenting follows a similar process. Initially, step parents act as extensions of the biological parent. They can enforce consequences. They can set boundaries. They can say no. But here's what the step-parent has to keep in mind. They have to know full well that they are not standing on their own authority. They live on borrowed power until such a time as their love relationship with the child matures and opens the door to more influence and to more authority. If that makes sense, just shake your head or do something. Now let me share some discipline do's and don'ts real quick for step-parenting. Number one, do make sure the biological parent has your back. Biological parents must communicate to their children an expectation of obedience to the step-parent, and then they must be willing to back up the step-parent's actions. 
And when disagreements over that happen, they best better happen in private. And not in front of the children. Because your kids were just like I was when I grew up. When I saw an opening to drive a wedge between my mom and dad, boom, I was on it. And your kids are the same way. When they see an opening to try to leverage a little bit of uh, 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 things in their favor, they're going to do it. And so don't let them see that mom and dad are at odds. To develop the same set of rules for all children, do develop the same set of rules for all children and enforce them fairly and consistently. Do strive for unity in parenting. Discuss things like behavioral expectations and boundaries and consequences and values. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about bringing your parenting philosophies in line. Oh, and by the way, all of that needs to be done before you ever get married. Don't just get married and hope that, that somehow you can make all that work. That's a disaster waiting to happen. Make sure you're on the same page. Don't be harsh or punish in a way that is inconsistent with a biological parent. And by the way, do not leave here today and just take parts of this that, are, that you can use in your favor and forget about the rest. I don't know how many times I've met, well, the preacher said this. Yeah, but listen, the preacher also said this. So don't just cherry pick little things here. Some of you are going, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, boom, got you, boom, got you. No, boom, got you, but somehow you're not choosing that. Thank you. Do, for, do focus on relationship building. That's your long-term strength. Do communicate with a biological parent a lot. If uncertain, find parental unity before engaging the children. Number, six, number seven, I'll not elaborate on this. Practice unconditional love and forgiveness. And finally, number eight, don't be in a hurry. I've mentioned this already, but I'll say it again here. Becoming a family takes time. Now, if you haven't done so, you say, oh, preacher, man, I wish I wouldn't have come this morning. You just hammered me. I had just totally messed this whole thing up. Well, then the truth of the matter is there's still hope. But in reality, it's going to take longer now. And you're going to have to go back and undo some things that's been done. And you may have to go back and have a family meeting and apologize. Or apologize one-on-one. -on -one and ask for forgiveness. And make a commitment to do better. Amen. Now, Pastor, why does it take so long to combine a step family and, and bond with stepchildren? Here are a couple of things, a number of things real quick. The step family is filled with complex dynamics that take most adults by surprise. Oh, I thought we had this whole thing figured out. Man, I got in there and we weren't married two, we weren't together two days. And boom, this hit me like a Mack truck. Well, yeah, welcome to step parenting. Here's another thought. Divorce doesn't really end family life. It just reorganizes it. In reality, in reality, your family just spreads out over multiple households now. In many cases, emotional and relational dynamics 
that preceded the divorce, they continue even though the family living arrangements have been restructured. In other words, she can't stand him and he can't stand her. Just because they're living in different states or different parts of the country now doesn't mean that, that, that that's all changed. Now they're not together. Oh, yeah, we love each other now. That, no, no. Abraham didn't stop loving Ishmael just because he was out of the home. And I don't think we ought to think for a moment that somehow Sarah started loving Hagar just because she wasn't there anymore. Stepfamilies need to realize that all the people sharing a home with your children and stepchildren are part of your expanded family. And I wouldn't do this until you're like really mentally strong. Because if you start counting the number of people now that are involved, <laughs> it can be exasperating. Listen, step families don't have family trees. They have a family forest. Huh? They have a family forest. And this complex forest simply takes time, speaking of time, to integrate. Now, say, preacher, all that's good. I'll, I'll, I'm going to think on that. I'm going to work on that. But I've got a question for you. Now, I know that I've not been the perfect parent. I, I get that. I know that. But, Pastor, I can honestly say that I've tried to do right with respect to the kid's uh, parent. But I'm just not getting anything like that in return. I, I try my best not to badmouth their mom or their dad or their new spouse or partner. But all they do is badmouth me. Pastor, I, I, we try to do everything we can when we have the kids to respect their, their, their rules and, and all of that. But preacher, they, they could care less about our rules. They don't give a rip about our guidelines or our boundaries. So preacher, tell me, please, in, in what time you have left, just tell me, I'll stay here till noon and every, or 1230 and everybody be happy. Well, I'll not take that long, but I will tell you this. Here's the answer. You ready? You can only do what you can do. Sorry. Not more elaborate than that, but that is the bottom line. You can only do what you can do. Now, I'm not being flippant when I say that, but that's the truth. But let me share this with you real quick, because here's what you can do, and you should do what you can do. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, chapter 12, you don't have to turn there. They'll be on the screen. But Romans, chapter 12, at the close of, of chapter 12, Paul speaks to us about how to get along with difficult people. And I think it's interesting that he begins that chapter by begging us or pleading with us based on God's dealings with us. He says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the what? The mercies of God. So in other words, he's telling us there that what is to follow through this entire chapter is based upon God's mercy to us. 
and God's forgiveness of us and God's love of us and God's treatment of us. And so he works his way down here, several different things, and he gets to the end of the chapter, and he starts talking about, based upon God, remembering God's mercy to us, how then we are to deal with difficult people. And he makes a statement, as much as, be, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men, knowing that there are just some people that you're not going to be able to live peaceably with. They are just disagreeable jerks in Jesus' name. That always makes it better. And it's just going to be difficult to get along with them. But he says, here, 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 here's what you do. He says in verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Listen, God is the only one who should seek vengeance because he's the only one who doesn't have an ulterior motive. He's perfect. He's not flawed by sin. He's the only one that ought to be seeking vengeance because he's the one that always desires our higher good. If a parent in the other home chooses evil, Listen, it's God's job to handle that, not yours. You're not doing God's bidding when you slash their tires. You're not doing God's bidding when you key their car. You're not doing God's bidding when you do any number of things that people do. Come on. Am I telling the truth, Thomas? Help me out here. Yeah. Those things happen. Well, I'm doing God a favor. God doesn't need your help, sir. Ma'am, God doesn't need your help. So stay off Facebook. Don't be ranting on Facebook. God doesn't need your help. He's got this. Paul closes chapter 12 with these words. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And by the way, he's not suggesting there that we can just tolerate their evil. He said we can overcome it by doing good. It is our task in the face of evil to offer good. Why? Because good invites repentance. And I wish I had more time. I, I read a letter this week in, in doing some research and study. I her, read a letter this week from a, a, a wife who was very honest. And she said, when, when me and my husband got married, I couldn't stand his ex-wife. I hated her. I didn't want to see her. I didn't want to look at her. I didn't want to hear from her. I gave her hell. And I just absolutely did everything I could to make her life miserable. But she just kept being kind. She just, she just kept smiling. She just kept loving me. And to make the whole letter short, she said, and now we're great friends. And before I couldn't stand her. And now all of a sudden, here's where we are. Good invites repentance. And then consider verse 20 real quick. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. 
According to one writer, the phrase heap coals of fire on his head refers to awakening the conscience of another. With good, we can melt the heart of evil with burning conviction. Constantly repaying evil with good holds a mirror in front of the perpetrator reflecting their evil as this woman was treated nicely and kindly and with love and respect. Here's what that other wife was doing. She was putting a mirror in front of her and helping her see you're not her. You're evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty. And she's none of those things. But pastor, what if the destructive parent doesn't repent? What if I'm never able to write one of those nice letters like you just talked about? Then that behavior is between that person and God. In the meantime, now listen, I'm just be honest. In the meantime, your life may be a little bit of hell on earth. In the meantime, there very well may be struggle and unfair treatment. And all of the things that that some of you have already had to deal with. I'm not telling you that all of this is going to change because you did what the preacher said to do. I'm just telling you that in the end, you have to answer for you. You're not going to have to answer for anybody else. You're going to have to answer for you. My wife was forever telling our kids, listen, you you can't do anything about how people treat you you can do something about how you respond. Did she not say that many, many times, Tyler? Absolutely, she did. She drove that into the the skulls of our children. You can't do anything about how people treat you, but you can do something about how you respond. So as we get ready for our time of invitation this morning, Here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. Number one, if you're not in a blended family situation, then here's what I'd encourage you to do today. I'd encourage you to just come and take a knee before the Lord and say, God, thank you. Because listen to me, in 2018, if you're not in a blended family, you're in the minority. Thank God for a good marriage. You're here this morning, you're not married, but you're looking to get married. Would you listen to what your pastor said this morning and take your time and make sure that you marry in God's will so none of this ever applies to you? If you are in a blended family situation, then I encourage you to come this morning again, take a knee before the Lord and say, God, help me to do things the right way. If you're in a blended family situation and you're having trouble with your ex-spouse or your ex-spouse's new spouse or new partner and come this morning and ask the Lord God just give me the grace to live out the principles of Romans chapter 12 and you're here this morning and you're the one causing the problems you're the one that's being mean and hateful and vindictive and just come and give that to the Lord say God I'm sorry you've convicted me today and I'm wrong God please forgive me 
and help me to do right. Would you pray with me today? Father, thank you.